0: series that we began a number of weeks ago where each week we're looking at a different icon of the faith, those who are iconic in the ways that they lived and the, the legacies that they have left us. And each week as we go, we put them, their picture, and a quote that represents them up on the front table here, and then we've been slowly shuffling them out to the sides there where you can see them hanging in the windows. There are now five of them which means if I can pull off remembering who they all are, it will be an impressive feat. Julian Norwich over here. Harriet Tubman over there. Um, Sandhu Sundar Singh in the back there. Um, Fanny Crosby on the left back. And then last week, um, you know, frankly, I can't see it from here, and I don't remember who that was. Who was last week? Who was it? Rep. Brother Lawrence, thank you. Brother Lawrence, look at that. And this is why we keep them out. Because even I, who preach on them, can't seem to keep them all straight. They leave a legacy for us as well as representing the diversity of what it can mean to live in faith so we can find a place to live our faith in the particularities and the unique qualities that God has created in us. Let us begin with prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Have any of you been watching the Winter Olympics this year? Anybody? A few? I know very little about winter sports, but I do try to make it a point every four years when it rolls around to watch the impossible feats of athleticism that happen there at the Olympics on skis and skates and sleds. We had the broadcast on a few days ago watching what I think was slalom skiing, And in one of the moments between competitors that the broadcasters work so hard to fill, one of the commentators was talking about the American competitor saying that she had always said that she made it to that level of competition, not on skill, but on hard work and determination. And I am sure that she did. But it struck me just the same. Are there competitors out there in that sport or any other that say, no, no, this is all talent. I'm skating by here on genetics and momentum because I doubt it. I doubt it because that would be absurd. And you can hear it from the athletes when they talk about their performances there at the Olympics, often speaking a little dreamily about how little they expected to be at the Olympics one day, though they hoped, they dreamed. None of the athletes seemed to be the sort to be so overly confident as to assume that they must have had what it would take. Surely they imagined it. Perhaps they imagined it a thousand times over how they could make it, and they gave it their all, and now, to their delight in what feels a little bit like a miracle, their all turned out to be enough. Sports are a frequent metaphor for the life of faith. Paul writes about it once, talking about living in Christ as running a race. And so there are valuable lessons there in the athletic world and perhaps here in this particular instance, wondering whether we have enough of whatever it takes to flourish in faith, imagining and dreaming that what little we have could be, miraculously, enough. This may well be the lesson of Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius was born a long time ago, October of 1491, to parents of minor nobility in a literal castle in Loyola in Spain, He was the youngest of their 13 children, and Inigo, as he was named at the time, he only adopted the name Ignatius much later because he thought it was more easily understood in France and Italy, where his ministry took place. Inigo had a comfortable childhood, as comfortable as you imagine for a child who was born in a literal castle. And from a young age, he was enchanted by the stories he heard of chivalrous and brave knights and their heroic quests, becoming interested in pursuing both military and fame for himself. And so he joined the army at 17 and was, as he was there, a pompous and overindulged child of nobility. One biographer described him as a fancy dresser, an expert dancer, a womanizer, sensitive to insult, and a rough, punkish swordsman who used his privileged status to escape prosecution for violent crimes committed with his priest brother at carnival time. This eventual saint was still rather far from sainthood. But a somewhat significant military career ended in 15, 1521 when Inigo, then 29 years old, was injured by a cannonball, which bounced off of a nearby wall and completely shattered his right leg. And so he underwent several surgical operations involving breaking and resetting his leg, which in 1521 was all done without anesthesia. And he was even at one point told to prepare for his death before taking a turn for the better in the end the surgeries would leave his right leg shorter than his left and he would limp for the rest of his life but he did recover he recovered just slowly and so to occupy his mind during his many weary hours of healing he asked for his favorite romantic stories of chivalry and knights and instead his sister-in-law brought him biographies on the life of christ and the saints history does not record how an ego felt about this substitution only that he read the books, and he was, in fact, captivated by the stories. Perhaps the most significant among them was De Vita Christi, The Life of Christ by Ludolf of Saxony, who, while relating the stories of Jesus in this biography, invites the reader to imagine themselves there in the gospel scenes, whether that's peering into the manger at the Nativity or looking on as Mary washed Jesus' feet with her tears. And this seems to have resonated with an ego. And he would later include this form of imaginative prayer in a series of spiritual exercises, which forms the basis of Ignatian spirituality named after him and for which he is known and which is still used today. But at that time, he was still just a young man captured now by two alternating daydreams. One where he fashioned himself in the form of the heroic knight undertaking quests in service of his king, and the other where he imitated the lives of the saints and lived in service of Christ. Eventually, he noticed that his dreams of chivalry left him feeling empty, while his saintly dreams provided him a deep peace in his spirit. And so he discerned that God was calling him to a new saintly way of life. We might have to wonder what in the world Inigo was thinking. The saints he had read about, whose lives he wanted to emulate, had left impossibly high standards in their wake. Was it too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that he could be like the saints of old, that God could do with him what God had done for them so long before? In those days, writes Mark, there was another large crowd with nothing to eat. The word another is important here. For a long time, the critics of the Gospel of Mark have insisted that this Gospel writer had absolutely no editorial process. He took every story he could find about the person of Jesus Christ, he shoved them all into a single book in no apparent order, and then he called it a day. It was the only way that these critics could come up with to explain some parts of this Gospel, including that he tells almost exactly the same story twice. Two chapters before this morning's scripture, Mark tells a story. There's a large crowd that has followed Jesus out into an isolated place. And the disciples go to Jesus and tell him to send everybody home so they can go buy themselves a good meal. But Jesus says to his disciples, no, you feed them. And the disciples balk because they don't have eight months worth of wages to buy that much food. Among them, they only have five loaves of bread and two fish. But Jesus, as the crowd sit down, he gives thanks over the bread and the fish and he passes it out. And by the time everyone has eaten their fill, there were 12 baskets of leftovers, and 5,000 people had been fed. And then, not that many days later, not that much further in the Gospel of Mark, the same story happens again. There's another hungry crowd. Jesus wants to feed them, but his disciples ask, How can anyone get enough food in this wilderness to satisfy this many people? Well, you might think they'd have some kind of an idea, considering it just happened. This, if you take on the face of it that Mark is telling a particular story in the gospel, is really a stunning moment. where The disciples have seen a miracle happen once, and then it is unfolding in front of their eyes all over again, and they have no idea how it can happen a second time. And the disciples only look worse as the details start coming out, for there are a few small differences between the stories. The first crowd of 5,000 were fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now they have seven loaves of bread and a few fish, and the crowd is only 4,000 people. That's more food and less people. Why would they still wonder aloud to Jesus, how can anyone get enough food to feed this many people? but I can sympathize with the disciples. I know what it's like to delight in God's goodness as I have experienced it in the past, but to let pessimism or just plain realism plan the future. I know what it's like to take stock of what I have to offer and count it out and come up short. I mean, how often do miracles happen twice anyway? It's best not to let the imagination run wild. Except that imagination may be exactly what we need. As Ignatius would later teach in his exercises, stretching ourselves spiritually is as important as physical stretching is for the athlete. Living by faith requires practice at pulling ourselves out of the story we might be telling and into the story that God is writing for us. Can we imagine ourselves in that story of multiplied abundance? I'd like to invite us to try. And not just in metaphorical sense. Literally, I'd like to invite us into a practice of imaginative prayer in the spirit of St. Ignatius, where we picture ourselves in this particular gospel story, letting God meet and speak to us while we're there. And so I'm going to guide us a bit with some words of description, questions to stir the imagination, retelling the story as we picture ourselves present there. And so I'd like to invite us to begin by letting yourself be comfortable where you are, where you're sitting, perhaps putting your feet on the floor, resting your hands in your lap, and take a deep breath and let it settle your spirit. We're about to go on a journey. I'd like to invite you to close your eyes so we might imagine we're with Jesus and his disciples and a crowd in a faraway, remote place. In your imagination, I invite you to look around. What can you see? What does the landscape there look like? Is the sun shining, or is there the shade of an overcast sky? Can you see the faces of the crowd as they stretch across the land? You can feel the pangs of hunger from a missed meal or several over the span of three days, The whole of the crowd can surely feel the same, and while no one that you can see has fainted or anything quite so serious just yet, you notice an increased restlessness as everyone begins to acknowledge their hunger. You can feel it deep in your gut. Someone nearby says something about how Jesus fed another crowd once before. You know this to be true, though it's hard to picture in the moment as you let your eyes take in the full size of this crowd. There are a lot of hungry people you can see. But then Jesus is talking and you turn to look at him. Picture what he looks like to you for a moment. He calls to his disciples. He says, I feel sorry for this crowd because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they won't have enough strength to travel. For some have come a long distance. How can you hear him saying this to his disciples? Is there compassion in his voice? Is it a rebuke or a teaching moment? Is he weary or is he hopeful? There is a moment of silence as the disciples all turn and they look at each other before one of them blurts out what they all must have been thinking, what we might be thinking, and asked, how can anyone get enough food in this wilderness to satisfy these people? In this moment, as we're there, Do you wonder at their short-sightedness, or do you understand their skepticism? Jesus asks back to them, how much bread do you have? The question was directed to the disciples, but now he turns for a moment and looks directly at you. What can you see in his eyes? Take a moment to consider what you have in your imagining, you have one of the loaves of bread, one of the fish, something else, nothing at all? Picture yourself holding whatever it might or might not be out to Jesus. How does he respond? Does he smile? Does he say anything to you? You hear someone call out a tally then, seven loaves of bread are being passed to Jesus, who is now motioning for everyone to sit. And you watch as the crowd makes their way to the ground, and you too ease yourself to the hard ground as Jesus begins to pray over the bread. And also it looks like there's some fish there. And you watch as he passes the food to his disciples, and they start to distribute it among the crowd. Slowly you begin to realize you can smell the bread and the fish. And then as if from nowhere there is a basket of both being handed to you. What does the bread look like? What type of fish is it? Do you take some? Do you eat it? How does it taste? You pass the basket further into the crowd, and you think about how full it was and how full you now are, and it's not too long until everyone has eaten, and you watch as seven baskets of leftovers are gathered together and realize a miracle has happened. How do you feel about this? Surprised? Relieved? Amazed? In awe? Hold on to this feeling and watch as Jesus dismisses the crowd with a wave and steps into his boat with his disciples. And he continues on his way. I'm invited to go ahead and open your eyes again. Inigo's own imagining convinced him that God could take and multiply what little he had to offer. And God did. When he could walk again, Inigo left his home to visit a monastery where he left his sword and his dagger on the altar. He gave his expensive clothes to a poor man, putting on the poor man's clothes. And he gave himself over to God's story and began to become the Ignatius remembered in history as a saint. He went first in a pilgrimage to see the Holy Land then returning to school to complete the education required to become a priest, studying for 11 years, beginning at grammar school, and then later studying Latin and theology through to an advanced degree. And then with two students he met at university, Ignatius of Loyola founded the Society of Jesus, better known as the Jesuits, the religious order still in existence today, which includes Pope Francis, the first Jesuit to be elected pope. And this order still focuses on Ignatius' spiritual practice, including the practice of imaginative prayer. Ignatius was no longer a rough, punkish swordsman, and one of his closest associates would write that he seemed all love, and there was no one in the society who did not have much great love for him and did not consider himself much loved by him. He was transformed, transformed by the grace of God, who blesses what little we have to offer and provides a feast. This experience, his whole life long, may have undergirded the sentiment he wrote once in a prayer, give me only your love and grace, with these I will be rich enough. Now Ignatius was hardly trying to overlook the physical necessities of life like food, but rather like a hungry crowd fed with a few fish and loaves of bread, recognize God's love and grace as the miraculous multiplier of everything else. That in the love and the grace of God, we might learn to glimpse the abundance amid the scarcity. We might learn to see what we have as sufficient to be blessed. Might learn to stretch our imaginations until we can discern the miracles that God will surely do again and over again. Give me only your love and your grace, Ignatius prayed to the one who blesses meager offerings to feed thousands. And with these... I will be rich enough. And in the divine hands, a small gift of self, blessed and broken, it was enough. A miracle done a thousand times over, done once more. A transformation. And so too, might we pray the same prayer, offer up the same meager gift of self, and find that it shall be enough miraculously, once again. Thanks be to God. Friends, I'd like to invite us as we continue in worship to stand and sing our next hymn, Tell Me the Stories of Jesus, the first two verses found in the...